We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Casey Stengel, Baseball's Greatest Character. The publisher, Doubleday. The author, Marty Appel. Please join me as we welcome home Marty Appel to the public. Before we go any further, <laughs> I just want to thank you for making this such a popular venue and a great place for baseball writers to come. You're too young to be called a New York institution, but you're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank Well, thank you. That means a lot coming from a New York institution. Also, I know a lot of people here, familiar faces, friends. I do want to single one out because I didn't have anybody from the Giants Ring of Honor at my bar mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> but Ernie Acorsi is here tonight, and that's really an honor. And thank you, Ernie, for coming. And he has to leave a little early, so uh, I'm making excuses for him as he slithers out. <laughs> and thank you for Eli, uh, Ernie. Uh, so just uh, briefly, uh, a brief bio of Marty's. This is mainly for those listening to the podcast because a lot of you know this, but for those who may not and for the listeners, Marty Appel was the youngest public relations director in baseball history when George Steinbrenner elevated him to the New York Yankees post in 1973. He worked for the team for 10 seasons beginning in 1968 and followed it by producing the games on WPIX television. He's the author of 23 books, including the New York Times bestselling Munson, The Life and Death of a Yankee Captain, and Pinstripe Empire, The New York Yankees from Before the Babe to After the Boss. And Marty, to just get us going, as we usually start, if you could just let us know how this book project came to be. I like that question because it's a pretty cool answer. Okay. Um, first of all, I want to say that over the two and a half years I worked on this book, I really don't think I met anyone under 40 who had even heard of Casey Stengel, which made me say, how many pennants do you have to win? <laughs> <laughs> but um, in 2009, um, MLB Network went on the air and they did a lot of these things called Prime Nine, which was like best baseball movie, best no-hitter, things like that. And they had baseball's greatest character. And Casey Stengel was named baseball's greatest character. So, I mean, he beat Babe and Satchel and Dizzy and Yogi, beat everybody. So my editor at Doubleday, Jason Kaufman, called me and said, uh, maybe it's time for a fresh look at Casey Stengel. And in my mind, immediately, of course, I thought of Bob Creamer's landmark book, which was fabulous, one of my favorite books. And I said to Jason, well, why not ask me to do Robert Moses while you're here? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we talked about it. He said, it's been 35 years, so maybe it's time for a fresh look. And where that led, was to material that Bob Creamer didn't have available to him before the internet, so that I was able to tap into uh, 
the archives of little newspapers in the minor league towns where Casey played and managed and got a lot of great old anecdotes that had been long forgotten and buried. So that was a great thing. And then the family found out I was doing this book. Well, I contacted them to get some information. And they were very pleased by that. So they made available to me um, an unpublished memoir by Casey's wife, Edna, that she wrote in 1958. She intended to get it published. She wanted $100,000 for it in 1958. So she found no takers and she said, okay, forget it. So it sat on a shelf all these years. Casey was all baseball, 365 days a year. He didn't go to movies, he didn't play cards, he didn't hunt, he didn't fish. He didn't do anything but read the sporting news and watch baseball games. But this book showed another side of him. The suitor, the husband, uh, the back, you know, the at-home life and the off-season. So what a find that was. And I sort of shed my guilt at redoing Bob Kramer because I had so much more stuff to work with. And, well, you did a, a fantastic job. I mean, I, I, I know I said this to you pre, uh, before we were on well, the air. It's good to tell it to everybody. Yes, <laughs> but uh, I was just mentioning this to Marty that I overdid it with events this uh, spring. I, we have a, basically an event every single week through June, and I have to read each book. So it's one to the next, and it doesn't stop. And when this came in, I'm like, wow, that's a thick book. And, but this is... Uh, this is fantastic, and I don't want to jinx you or anything, but uh, there's something called the Casey Award, ironically, for the best baseball book of the year. And in 2015, I predicted the book that was going to win after that he was here, uh, Billy Martin by Bill Pennington, a great book. And last year, The Last Innocence by Michael Leahy, fantastic. So it's too early for me to make my prediction, but I will definitely predict that this will be a finalist wow. for the uh, Casey Award. Thank you. So come back and see me in a few months. Okay. Uh, but I, I won that once. For, oh, you did? For Slide Kelly's Slide, oh. 1996. So oh. has there ever been a two-time winner? That may, well, that may work against you. I'm not sure. You know. <laughs> may, yeah. Uh, and, uh, we're going to get into a lot of things, and we're going to definitely leave room for a time for Q&A. But what struck me as I was reading the book, it obviously, A, is about Casey Stengel. But B, and this is just how I took it, the more I read it, the more I felt it's about relationships. And it's Casey's relationship to baseball. As Marty just said, that was his life 365 days a year, baseball. His relationship with Edna, his wife. Uh, the writers, the fans, and we'll get into the net, Yogi, Mickey, DiMaggio, uh, Billy Martin. Uh, and I just wanted to, as Marty knows and some of the regulars know, I don't let the authors come and just open the book, read page 17, and put everybody to sleep, even when it's a great book. This is much more interesting, the discussion in the Q&A. But I do want to just read one paragraph for now. It's, in the, it's from the first page of the book. It's about the fourth, fifth paragraph in. He batted against Grover Cleveland Alexander, chased fly balls hit by Babe Ruth, sent Ron Swoboda up to pinch hit, and moved Cleon Jones to left field. His career had spanned John McGraw and Tug McGraw. And so I guess to get us going a little bit is Casey's relationship with baseball. I mean, that 
There's one of those. Well, it was 55 years starting from when he first became a professional player with the Kankakee Lunatics. That was their name. <laughs> the, uh, he started out playing in a league that went belly up in, uh, the, in that first summer. Um, the team was actually the Kankakee Illinois Kays, K-A-Y-S. But the ballpark was next to an asylum for the insane. So the newspaper, you know, was nobody cared about politically correct. <laughs> so the newspapers began calling the team the lunatics. So I stumble on this in those archives that I had access to, and I'm like, well, how perfect is this? He starts his career as a lunatic. <laughs> uh, and then, if we can, so we'll stay on the theme of relationships. Uh, I think it's only fitting that before we get into uh, some of the baseball guys, we should speak a little bit about Edna, uh, how long they were married and this relationship. They uh, met in 1924 at the Polo Grounds. Um, the player, Irish Musel, his wife was a friend of Edna. An introduction was arranged in the stands after a ball game. And Casey liked Edna and was kind of smitten by her, but he was not a romantic at all. He saw her maybe three or four times in the ensuing year. And then he never said, will you marry me? There was walking down the street and he says, so you want me to change to Catholic or what? <laughs> and that, that was the proposal. <laughs> um, they had a loving relationship, but they each had their defined role. He turned over all his money to Edna. She wrote in this memoir, he never once gave me a present, not for my birthday, not for Christmas. I never got a gift from Casey. All I got was his love and his paychecks, and he told me, buy whatever you want. There's no limit. <laughs> and that was the relationship. They never had any children. Um, they, they were both in their mid-30s when they married. And in, the, in those days, people in their mid-30s didn't start families. So that's probably the reason they had no children. Now, Casey had a brother and a sister, and ne neither of them had children. So when Casey died in 1975, that was the end of the line. There are no blood descendants. And before we get into some of the ball players and, and things in that area, Maybe if you could just speak a little bit. We're kind of jumping ahead, but uh, his relationship with the writers. Well, he used to say, make sure you learn the names of the writers before you learn the names of the players. And that especially worked well with the Mets because the players were in and out every day. <laughs> um, but he cultivated the writers. He liked them. And he would spend hours after the games in the hotel bars buying them all drinks on through the night, signing it to the Yankees tab, <laughs> and regaling them with, uh, with stories. And of course, he went back so far, they were all enthralled by his tales of early baseball. In this audience, I know many of you would know the name Kid Nichols, who's a 300-game winner in the Hall of Fame, a 19th century pitcher. He was a neighbor of Casey's in Kansas City kind of an early mentor to Casey Stengel. So never mind John McGraw to Tug McGraw, how about Kid Nichols to Tug McGraw? <laughs> um, but Casey was just a favorite of the writers. Only Howard Cosell disapproved of him. 
but the writers, they all loved him, none more than Maury Allen, who we miss. Maury made a side career out of writing Casey Stengel books. <laughs> and um, I couldn't resist, but Casey died, we're jumping back and forth again, Casey died near midnight in 1975 on the day he died. And uh, I wrote, this was one last favor to Maury Allen, who wrote for an afternoon paper. It was too late for the morning papers. <laughs> and, and to now step, go back in time a little bit, because I think many people know about Casey as a, ma as a manager. We'll get into the Yankees and the Mets, but if you could just speak a little bit about Casey, the ball player, and then we'll, I have a question off of that. Yeah, he was better than we might think. If there were all-star teams, all-star games back then, he might have been picked for two or three all-star teams. He was an outfielder. Uh, he played 14 years. He hit 284. And you know how BaseballReference.com compares you to other players based on your stats? So they compare him to Cleon Jones. So if that helps you establish what kind of a player he was, that was pretty good. He was never in the back of a van. Uh, no, 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 okay. no. It's a whole different subject. <laughs> yeah, different book. Uh, but a word that comes up a, a lot in the, well, there's a few words that come up a lot in the book, but one of the words that comes up often in the book during his playing time is clown. And I was fascinated by, sometimes you'll see a guy, I mean, now the, a lot of the managers are catchers uh, who go on to be managers. And you'll even see a guy and they'll talk about him and they'll say, oh, that, he has what it takes to be a manager. And I was just fascinated. Here you have this guy who, as you said, was a, a good ball player, but he had this reputation of being a, a clown. He goes on to be one of the all-time great managers in baseball history. You would not normally associate a clown with becoming a great manager. The clown came from several different anecdotes along the way. One was dropping a grapefruit out of an airplane that Wilbur Robinson, the Brooklyn manager, caught against his chest and it exploded when it made impact and Robinson was yelling, I'm killed, I'm killed. <laughs> <laughs> and Casey may not have been in the plane actually, but he was clearly an organizer of this stunt. And then when Brooklyn traded him to Pittsburgh and he came back to Ebbets Field, uh, the fans were booing him because he was an enemy player now, even though he'd been very popular. So in the outfield, he scooped up a sparrow that had been stunned. It had flown into a wall and was just sort of laying there. So he scoops up the sparrow and puts it in his cap. Now I write, the caps were so flat in those days. How did he get away with this? But he did. And when he came to bat for Pittsburgh, the fans were booing and he doffs his cap and the sparrow flies out. His way of giving the bird to the fans. <laughs> well, they loved it and they cheered him ever after and he was always popular in Brooklyn. Uh, so things like that gave him that clownish uh, reputation. But he was also three times a manager before he started his real managing career. Once, right after like his second or third year, a high school classmate of his from Kansas City had become the baseball coach at Ole Miss. And he calls Casey and says, come down here and be my assistant manager. So Casey couldn't have been more than 21, 22 years old and he was the assistant manager, assistant coach at Ole Miss. Now he couldn't get paid for that, 
but he could get paid if he taught a class. So they got him a class to teach, and that's where the nickname, the old professor, comes from, because he taught in Ole Miss at such a young age. Um, World War I, the Great War, comes in 1918. Uh, the season ends early. Casey gets drafted into the Navy, but he's assigned to the uh, Brooklyn Navy Yard, where he becomes the coach of the Brooklyn Navy Yard team. Tough assignment, you know? <laughs> and he used to say they would play the visiting crewmen that would come in on ships to New York, but he said the key was to play them within 24 hours before they had their sea legs while they were still wobbling. <laughs> And then when he was an older player, John McGraw split his camp into two, an A squad and a B squad. And the B squad was like 70 miles away from San Antonio where the Giants trained. And Casey, who was a player, McGraw says, you go up and manage that team. <coughs> well, this was good and bad. This showed McGraw respected Casey's baseball acumen that he would know how to run a camp. But Casey was competing for an outfield job there, and he was suddenly out of the competition by being out of sight. So he wound up writing to McGraw saying, uh, get somebody else, I'm coming back. And he returned to the Giants. And McGraw said, this is just another smart aleck thing you've done. He always <laughs> saw Casey as a smart aleck, even though he respected his baseball intelligence. And what was their relationship like, uh, the John McGraw-Casey? Was he, was he his mentor? Casey learned a lot from him. Uh, I think McGraw felt he was a smart aleck and really didn't care to have him on the team that much. He platooned Casey, which was sort of Casey's first taste of that, but he sat at McGraw's side in the Polo Grounds <coughs> dugout and he learned a lot. He'd like comment on what a great play had just been made and McGraw would say, you think that was a great play? And that wasn't a great play and he'd tell him why it wasn't and Casey's eyes would pop open, he couldn't believe what he was learning at McGraw's side. So it was a very interesting relationship there. And now let's get into a couple of the relationships with some names uh, uh, everyone is going to be familiar with. Uh, this crowd knows everybody. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, and in no particular order, but let's start with, uh, with Yogi. Yogi was a guy who wasn't platooned. In fact, he was overworked, if anything. If you look it up, one of Casey's <laughs> Yankees would play 154 games. Yogi would catch 150 of them. One year, they played 24 doubleheaders, and Yogi caught both ends 22 times, even after the pennant was clinched. So if anything, he overworked Yogi. But what he did best for Yogi, Yogi preceded him. He was there before Casey got there. And the writers immediately took to kind of ridiculing Yogi Berra for his appearance, for his lack of formal education beyond the fifth grade. He became a bit of a laughingstock for readers of the New York newspapers. Casey changed that immediately. He called him Mr. Berra. He always acknowledged his contributions to the game that the writers may not have noticed to make sure they were aware of it. He began to refer to him as my assistant manager. So it was, uh, with Yogi, a wonderful relationship that was sort of out of the box with his other relationships, which were a little trickier. Yeah, so maybe let's go to one of those. Uh, let's, how about Joe DiMaggio? 
DiMaggio was really interesting, and this part I did not know. I would have used it in Pinstripe Empire if I was aware of it. Um, when Casey showed up in 49, everybody was, couldn't wait to see how in the world he was getting along with the elite player in the game, Joe DiMaggio. Everything about DiMaggio was dignity. Everything about Casey was just the opposite. So all eyes were on this relationship. The very first day of spring training in 1949, Casey walks into the middle of the clubhouse in St. Petersburg with his set of spring training rules. $5 a week to the chambermaid, everything. <clears throat> in the middle of the rules is players can't go to the dog track at night. Anybody who knew Joe DiMaggio knew that's what Joe did every night. So this was a DiMaggio rule. Well, talk about a line in the sand on the first day. Well, how do you think this played out? DiMaggio went to the track anyway, he totally defied Casey's rule. When asked about it, Casey said, well, I have no first-hand knowledge of that. I wasn't there, so I have no comment on it. So they just sort of found a way to get along. I was thinking as I was writing it, imagine today, <laughs> 2,500 cell phone photos of Joe at the track. <laughs> the newspapers saying, what now, Casey? Your move, Casey. There had been such chaos in the first week of spring training. But it, amazing to think of how that would have played out. And before we go, go on to the next Yankee, uh, I just want to read something that Marty wrote. Again, rather brief, but this is when DiMaggio was retiring. Uh, Casey flew, flew back from Glendale to New York and reported to the Yankees' Fifth Avenue offices for a press conference on December 11th. Joe DiMaggio was announcing his retirement. It was important that Stengel be there, especially to show that there were no bad feelings between the two. I played my last game of ball, said Joe. Casey said, what is there to say? I just gave the big guy's glove away and it is going to the Hall of Fame where Joe himself is certain to go. He was the greatest player I ever managed, and right now I still say there isn't another center fielder in baseball as equal. When they played the Star Spangled Banner, every player would stand in the dugout and they'd look at Joe. When the music stopped, Joe would charge out on the field and they'd charge after him and I knew I had a leader. And when the game was over, 10,000 people would be waiting to look at him and I knew I had something. They were always very respectful of each other publicly. I mean, Joe would go to touch shores at night and tell all his close friends what an idiot Casey was. <laughs> and, you know, Casey probably said, oh, DiMaggio, he thinks he's the greatest. He needs special privileges. But publicly, they never said anything bad about each other, which was, of course, the perfect way to get along. And I'm definitely not a psychiatrist, but two relationships that are, are fascinating. Uh, the first, Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle is really interesting. I mean, I knew this, and you probably know it, but to really dig deep into it, Mickey was, in the end, just a disappointment to Casey Stengel. When he took a look at him at age 19, he thought, my gosh, I'm going to be the manager of Babe Ruth. Mickey presented himself like that. I mean, that athleticism, that build. He was Babe Ruth, plus he could run like a deer, and he was a switch hitter. Casey expected 
that he had Babe Ruth. Well, Nicky won two MVPs, won a Triple Crown. They're in the World Series every year, but somehow Casey never was satisfied. He never felt he had the ultimate Mickey Mantle there. And Mick had so many injuries and everything. Right. Um, so they had kind of a father-son relationship, although Casey was old enough to be his grandfather. Mickey was kind of surprised that Casey was once a player and knew things. <laughs> but um, by and large, Mickey was a disappointment to Casey, and it kind of hurt me even to come to that conclusion and realize it. Late in Casey's Yankee days, some magazine asked him to name his all-time best at each position. He put Hank Bauer over Mickey Mantle. Hank Bauer, good player. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, there's a lot there, there's yeah. a lot there. And the other very complex relationship, uh, Billy Martin. I knew that was, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Billy Martin was a really interesting relationship. Also kind of father-son, Casey had Billy Martin in the minor leagues at Oakland before he even got to the Yankees. And then a couple of years later, Casey's with the Yankees, Billy Martin comes along. Now, of all the players I've seen in my lifetime, nobody excelled beyond his abilities quite like Billy Martin did when he wore the Yankee uniform. He wasn't that good, but he was like a World Series hero every year. He would put on that uniform and magic things would happen. And Casey loved it, of course, and he was Casey's boy. It says that on his plaque in Monument Park. Um, Came 1957, Billy gets as part of a fracas at the Copacabana nightclub. And so they were celebrating Billy's birthday. Mickey was there, Yogi was there, Johnny Cooks was there, Hank Bauer. And um, Billy knows he's going to get traded after this fight because Yankee management thought he was just being a bad influence on other players. And sure enough, on the trading deadline, June 15th, he gets traded to Kansas City. Well, Billy couldn't believe that Casey, his guy, his mentor, wouldn't stand up for him, wouldn't stop that trade, wouldn't keep Billy as a Yankee forever. And for the next 20 years, he never spoke to Casey Stengel. He harbored this anger and this resentment that Casey had let him down. And sure enough, the remainder of Billy's playing career was very ordinary, if not below average. When people would ask Casey about this as years went by, Casey would say, well, just tell Billy Martin to grow up. This is the profession he chose. People get traded every day. He's making much too big a deal out of it. That's just the way it is in baseball. End of story. And that really was Casey. He wasn't like a warm, fuzzy people guy. It was all a business to him. He wanted to win whatever it took, and that, that was the Casey's nature. Interestingly, the players like DiMaggio, Henrik, and Rizzuto, who played for both Joe McCarthy and Casey Stengel, preferred McCarthy. The players on the other end, who played for Stengel and then Ralph Houck, preferred Ralph Houck. So he wasn't a player's manager, but they did love cashing those World Series checks every October. <laughs> That's for sure. And a story that we're not going to tell now because when you read the book, you'll get this, but 
It's a really uh, very touching story uh, with Billy Martin at the end of Casey's life. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, and this is fair notice uh, to get ready with your questions. This is my last question, then, then we're going to turn it over. But we can only see th things through our own eyes. And I, I'm a Met, I have to admit, I'm a Mets fan. I'm sorry. And, uh, How'd the Mets it, do today? Uh, <laughs> same as every day. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, bring back Casey. So, by the way, by the way, interruption. Yes. You know how Casey was this wrinkled old bent over man when he managed the Mets? We have this image of this aged guy. Terry Collins the same age. <laughs> the same age. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that's funny because my, my memory as a four-year-old, uh, the first year of Shea Stadium is Mr. Met and this, who is this 150-year-old man out there? You know? That's all I remember from the game. Uh, but anyway, it's, again, through my eyes, it seemed that the, 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 he takes a, a, a different tone, or the book takes a different tone. Casey, as a manager with the Yankees, and then a manager of the Mets, and the only way I could really think about it was, and you just spoke about it, the guys liked the manager who they had before, the other guys liked the manager who, the other manager. It seems like the Yankee Casey, a lot of it is it with his head, in a way. The Yankee, the Met Casey, is a little bit, there's more of a heart. And a number of times you refer to, in the book to his Mets. Uh, and obviously had much more success in strictly wins and losses and championships with the Yankees. But I, maybe I just read it this way. It seemed like his heart in many ways was with the Mets in a, in a different way. It's true. And First of all, he loved that the Mets reached out to him after the Yankees had fired him and gave him another chance. And part of the reason he went back was one, as a favor to George Weiss, who was the president of the Mets, but also as a little bit of a chance to stick it to the Yankees, because he was very bitter over being fired. And for the rest, remainder of his life, he was a Mets guy all the way. He would sign autographs, let's go Mets, Casey Stengel, uh, the only exception was he wore Yankee underwear, which Edna was forever trying to get him to switch to Mets underwear, but he found it very comfortable. <laughs> I didn't know they had Yankee underwear. <laughs> um, let me say something about the different Casey Stengel from the two. Even up to that seventh game of the 1960 World Series, Casey was a fully engaged manager encyclopedic in his mind about how to run the game and who did what against who and how you do everything. He was totally into it. He was brilliant. Then he was off in 61, turned down two managing jobs that year, the Angels and the Giants, went back to the Mets in 62, and it was clear to everybody he was there for public relations. He was there to steal the hearts of New Yorkers to wine and dine the writers, to make people love the Mets. Totally accomplished that. But in the process, he really stopped being the manager that he was with the Yankees. In fact, as I learned by talking to Mets players, he wasn't even managing. Solly Hemus and Cookie Lavagetto, his coaches, were doing the lineups, doing the pitching rotation. They were managing from the dugout. 
And on the field, Richie Ashburn in center field was running the game, positioning the players and things like that, even motioning to the bullpen as to who should warm up. <laughs> Bob Miller, or the other Bob Miller. <laughs> so um, he was a totally different person. He was there for PR. You know, the Mets, when you think about it, they got so much right in that first year. The song, the mascot, the Let's Go Mets chant, the, you know, the fans with their placards, Casey was always talking about the placards, and hiring Casey Stengel. They did so much right to get that franchise going. With rare exception, it's been downhill ever since. Well, uh, yeah. few no, no, I, I shouldn't say that. Uh, <coughs> you I, can say it, you're a Mets fan. <laughs> All, All right, so who wants to lead off? Uh, right here. Um, there's so many different things we could, we could ask you, and, and it's great to have the insight you have from, first of all, knowing Casey, and then having access to Edna's writings, be able to put all of this together. And this, uh, Jay and you had both mentioned about relationships, and that's what baseball is all about. It's about relationships of sons and fathers and players through the years and generations. But what was Casey's relationship like with his coaches? How, how, did, how did the coaches play? Because coaches kind of stay with managers as they travel around, and he was such a, a, a dynamic personality when you read about him. And I know that, as was attested by the players, feeling that they'd rather have Hauk than Stengel, or they'd rather have McCarthy than Stengel. What was his relationship like with his coaches, and how did he use them? His coaches were with him for long stretches. Bill Dickey and Jim Turner and um, Frank Rossetti were like fixtures with the Yankees all his run there. But interestingly, remember the Yankees had a bad year in 59. They actually didn't win the pennant. And they were only like 79 and 75 or something. It was a really bad year, partly because Bob Turley had fallen off from his Cy Young season in 58. At the end of the season, Jim Turner, his loyal pitching coach, is shown the door. He fires Jim Turner. Um, so the loyalty only went so far. He needed a scapegoat for that 59 season. It turned out to be Turner, who went to Cincinnati and was their pitching coach when they won the pennant in 61. Turner was pretty good, but Casey, it was all business to him. An interesting thing is that after 59, the Yankees traded Hank Bauer to Kansas City for Roger Maris. That was a perfect baseball move. Thank you, Hank, you've done great, but you're old, and here we got a chance to get the young replacement in Roger Maris. Except Casey didn't see it that way when he was shown the door for Ralph Houck, the much <laughs> younger manager, a year later, but it was kind of the same thing. I've often seen that clip of uh, Marshall and uh, Staying on some hearing and the double talk and the round circle dialogue, and then Matt says the same whatever Mr. Stangle said. Um, did Casey actually have clear dialogue and thoughts, or was always kind of a little mischievous in the kind of talk, or just the crystal press he did that? Well, a couple of things about Stangalese. Number one, this is the first time that I ever read the audio version of a book, which was fun. It was hard work. It was 32 hours in a little studio reading the book. Oh my gosh, is it hard to read Stengel. <laughs> There's no punctuation. It just goes on and on. 
you feel like you can't pause because that kills the essence of it. So that was a real challenge. But um, Stengelese was double talk, which he would use to either avoid an answer or to stall for time until he thought of one. And the most famous use of it came at the Kafauver hearings in 1958, the day after the All-Star Game, which was in Washington, or was it Baltimore? Might have been Baltimore, but in either case, they were convenient to Washington, so they were called to these hearings for the Kafauver Commission, investigating whether baseball should have its antitrust exemption. And we're not gonna talk about that, folks. We're not gonna have a conversation about the antitrust exemption. But Casey was asked one question, and in his mind, he was prepared. Whatever the question is, I'm gonna tell my life story in Stengelese. <laughs> and so he talked about being born in Kansas City and signing with Kankakee. He didn't talk about them being the lunatics. And uh, on he went for like 15 or 20 minutes without pausing, without a semicolon. He just kept going. And at the end, of course, Mickey Mantle goes up and says, well, I agree with everything Casey just said. <laughs> but he had all the senators laughing in a bipartisan way. <laughs> Which, by the way, that's uh, in, the, in this book, so it's a little bonus. And I didn't read, that's an appendix, the yeah, testimony. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I just said, could we not read this in the audio version? <laughs> Adam? Thank you, were, thank you for asking. Because I know they were both from KC, I think, or I think Ellie was also from KC as well, so. Well, it was a difficult part to write because I really needed to get this right. Um, and let's face it, it's the most difficult issue in America, racism. And the question was, was Casey Stengel, born in 1890, student at segregated public schools in Kansas City, was he a racist, whether because he was a bad guy or whether this was just the way he was brought up? So I had to deal with this. And like a lot of discussion on this issue, there's, however, on the other hand, on the other hand, so here's where it comes out. On the one hand, Casey just wanted the best players. He saw the Dodgers had Jackie and Roy and Nuke, and he saw the Giants had Willie and Monty. Where's mine? I want to win. Now, the Yankees were winning every year, so the pressure was not being felt. But, of course, there were a lot of journalists and everybody saying, hey, Yankees, you're really running behind on this one. So along comes Elston Howard, and Casey does make this little joke. I finally get one. One and he can't run. And everybody laughs, and it sounds kind of racist. But as Casey's grandniece said to me, the one who gave me the Edna manuscript, remember the first part of that, I finally get one. That's really what it was for Casey. He wanted to win, he wanted the best players. And you have to give him credit for creating an environment into which Elston Howard could walk and play ball 
and not have any of the pressures other teams imposed on minority players. He was welcomed. Mickey Mantle said he would have roomed with Ellie if given the choice. You had Bill Dickey from Little Rock. You had um, Jim Turner from Nashville, all welcomed Elston Howard. And I guess the most important thing you could say is Arlene Howard thought he was not racist at all. She and Elston loved him, thought he was terrific. So on balance, we have to say you did okay on this one, Casey. And I, just a question before we get to the uh, back there. Uh, you bring it up a few times in the book. Casey and Jackie Robinson definitely uh, were not the best of uh, buddies. Yeah, that was the part that, you know, you could chide Casey for not... <laughs> Jackie Robinson would <laughs> scold the Yankees for their slowness to integrate. And Casey would respond to Jackie by saying he's chock full of nuts, he doesn't know what he's talking about, um, and defend his bosses. So, you know, that's sort of what you're supposed to do is right. defend the guy that writes the check. And Casey probably had enough credits in the bank where he could have opposed Yankee management and said it's time we had one. He chose not to do that. And also, not that any other teams did this, the Yankees didn't help Elston Howard acclimating to the, to the area at all. Ellie and Arlene had a fight on their own to get a house in Teaneck, New Jersey in a white neighborhood, and the Yankees were nowhere to be seen in helping to bring that about. So, as I say, there's a lot of on the one hand, on the other hand, but on balance, I think Casey comes out okay on this. Let's uh, ask Ernie. Was there an incident where Casey pulled the manager off the field? Um, he never pulled him off the, the The one headline incident with DiMaggio, he never pulled him in the middle of an inning or anything like that. There was a game where DiMaggio had a bad arm and shouldn't have been out there at all, and he made a weak throw, and then he took himself out of the game. But there was a game in DiMaggio's last season at Fenway Park where Casey put DiMaggio at first base without even discussing it with him. Joe had never taken ground balls there, had never done anything in spring training there. All of a sudden he sees the lineup, he's at first base. Joe never wanted to be embarrassed. That was the last thing he ever did to Joe DiMaggio. So that was cruel in its own way. DiMaggio played the game flawlessly but uh, he never put him back there at first base again. And apparently after the game, Joe just exploded to his friends, not his teammates, about what Casey had done. But not to Casey? Not to Casey, no. My friend and I here had made a trip to the Yogi Berra Museum. Yes. And just a personal observation, I remember seeing Casey Stengel's cleats I said, this was not a small man. And now, you know, we remember him from his managing days when he slouched and what, in his playing days, what, what were his physical characteristics? He was like 5'11", 185, yeah, and really broad shoulder. There's some pictures in the books of him when well, he was, was a, a player. Sense I got from seeing the cleats. He was a strong guy. He was not adverse to mixing it up and having fights. Um, he was a tough character. <laughs> Question that has nothing to do with baseball. Casey, even though he lived baseball, he made a fortune in another industry, didn't he? 
Yeah, the question is Casey's fortune out of baseball. This was an interesting discovery too, because I, like a lot of people in baseball, thought that Casey made a lot of money because his in-laws owned a bank in Glendale, right. California. Casey was made a vice president of the, of the bank and was on their board of directors. And people from the baseball community in the wintertime, if they'd be out there, they'd go to the bank and Casey would say to them, now I'm only a vice president, I'm not authorized to hand out samples. <laughs> but anyway, that turned out not to be the source of his wealth. In 1937, well, after 36, the, he had been managing the Boston Bees, the Braves, and they fired him and had to pay him for 37. I'm sorry, he was managing Brooklyn in 36. They fired him and they paid him not to manage in 37. So he was out of baseball that year. Edna used to say that's why he wore number 37 as a Yankee number. But in any case, he's out of baseball in 37. And during the course of the year, um, he gets a tip from a teammate. The teammate's father was investing in an oil well in Texas. And would Casey like to come in? Well, that sounded pretty good to him. Oil wells were fairly new in the 30s. We think they've been there forever, but they were fairly new in the 30s. As soon as I stumbled on this, I said, oh, I gotta learn about the oil business. <laughs> I wanna sound like I know what I'm talking about. So he invested and that well is still pumping oil to this day and sending out an annual check to the Stengel estate. And his top baseball salary, which was a lot of money back then, was $80,000 managing the Yankees. And this paid more per year. This, was, this has enabled him to uh, just do whatever he wanted to do. Bob? Uh, Marty, can you talk a little bit about the pitching selection? <laughs> he got criticized a lot in the 1960 World Series uh, for not starting Whitey Ford in the first game and thus not having him in, available in game seven. And I guess it was justified. He said at the time he was going to start Art Dittmar because Dittmar led the staff and wins with 15. Whitey only was 12 and 10 that year, but still, it's Whitey Ford, you know. <laughs> um, so he didn't start him in game one, and so he wasn't available in game seven. And a lot of people said, ah, that's why Casey got fired, because he mishandled the pitching in the 60 World Series. It's possible Whitey wasn't physically able to go in that game one. But another thing that's really never examined, remember that Whitey won two shutouts in that series, 10 nothing and 12 nothing. Well, he had nothing to do with the 10 and the 12. I mean, he had shutouts. But if Casey was thinking ahead, he could have pulled Whitey after five or six innings in either of those games and maybe had him available for the seventh, too. He didn't need him to go a complete game. I mean, this we're thinking like it's 2017, but um, he didn't need those complete games out of Whitey with such a lead. So that was a flaw also. So there was justification in criticizing him, just as we were all so smart about Joe Madden last year screwing up the <laughs> World Series, but Madden wound up winning it. <laughs> Incident 
Dolph Luque was this Cuban pitcher who Casey, Casey had like two or three fights with him over the course of their careers. And um, there was another pitcher I'm blanking on too, but he had fights with him also. And uh, when he was once asked, who's the best hitter you ever saw? He said, Dolph Luke. <laughs> Paul. Marty, I'm, I'm just curious, what was the thinking in the Yankee front office when they hired Stengel for the 49 season? Before that, he was a joke. He had managed in Brooklyn and Boston and never had a, a great, maybe a few winning seasons, but not much. And he was a minor league manager. Back not any. Not any. <laughs> there you go. I defer to you. And so why did the Yankees, who were, you know, the Yankees, why, why did they hire Stengel? It was really George Weiss and a little bit Del Webb. They both went back a long way with Casey. Um, Webb, not really so much in baseball, but he was just sort of always around and he'd bump into Casey. He actually, his contracting company, his construction company, did work for Edna at some point along the way. He worked for Edna. Um, yeah. But George Weiss met him when Casey was managing Worcester in 1925, I think it was. And they just stayed in touch all those years. They'd sit together at All-Star Games or at World Series Games. There was a friendship there, even though Casey was so extroverted and Weiss not. Um, so Weiss said, he's got a great baseball mind. We'll take him. The interesting thing to me was the parallel between hiring Casey and hiring Joe Torrey in 1996. Both of them had long nationally managing careers with very little to show for it. Casey was a clown, Joe was clueless Joe, except that wasn't an insult, it was just like be careful what you look, you know, what you're getting into, to be fair. Still, the expectations were low for both. And within five years, Casey had won five World Series, <laughs> Torrey four, and their tickets to Cooperstown were punched. Oh, can I make a comment about that, please? Yes, you can. Because there is a, a link between those two things um, that uh, Casey and Joe Torrey, um, because Arthur Richmond was a very good friend and acolyte of George Weiss um, when they went to work for the Mets. And then Arthur was the one that suggested to George Steinbrenner that he hire Joe Torrey as manager. That's true. So Arthur may be the link and the reason why though those two things are, are linked. Thank you, Mary. I like that shirt, too. Oh, you like my shirt. <laughs> did you bring an extra one? <laughs> I actually did. So oh, wow. We'll talk later. <laughs> that, um, was, that was Perry Barber who's wearing Casey Stengel on her T-shirt. Okay. I, are you, <laughs> How's your hand? Um, I got hit by a foul ball. Wow. That's baseball. <laughs> Any other uh, questions? Really? Wow. You shut him oh, up. I have another one. Um, uh, when uh, Casey was managing uh, the 56 Yankees, Don Larson tells a tale of how he found out that he was pitching that day by finding the baseball in his shoe when he went into the locker room. Was that something that Casey did 
all along his managerial career? It was Jim Turner. He was the pitching coach. Oh, okay. He so did it. it wasn't it wasn't Casey. Yeah. Was the coach. Okay. Thank you. Anyone uh, who has not yet asked a question? Okay. All right. David Halberstam, in his book about the 1949 penny chase, this this I've never forgotten this uh, anecdote he shares about uh, Yogi Berra with the injured thumb. And the a schedule took the Yankees into St. Louis to play the Browns. And that's Berra's hometown. <coughs> Berra's going to see Mama. And Mother says, you don't go back to play until you put 11 on your thumb. And you got to leave it there until I tell you to take it off. So Stanger was constantly asked by the writers, what is Berra getting back on the, uh, the field? Stegel says, I don't know, I gotta catch it with a lemon on his thumb and he'll let me know when he's ready to play again. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of catchers, Steve Jacobson, was the great Newsday columnist, told me that the first spring training he ever covered was the 62 Mets. And he had just gotten married. So he brought his young bride, Anita, to St. Petersburg and he wanted to introduce her to Casey. And Casey said, Nice to meet you. I'm only meeting you now for the first time, and already you could be my third string catcher. <laughs> Adam, did you have a question? Yeah, um, I had read this about his relationship with his players, and this goes back to his National League days. Um, and this was in the Aaron book by Howard Bryant that Warren Spawn, one of the reasons why he was looking forward to playing them, is he hated Stangle because. Well, Casey had Spawn with the Boston Braves when Spawn first arrived, and he cut him because he thought he was gutless. He said he doesn't throw inside, he's not going to be a major league pitcher. Spawn proved him wrong. <laughs> and then he signed with Casey with the Mets in the 60s, and Spawn's great line was. <laughs> I had Casey as my manager before and after he was a genius. <laughs> well, we're starting to wind down with the time on the clock for the podcast, so uh, we're going to give the last word, actually, to Casey Stengel. But before I do, I just want to say that, uh, again, it was a pleasure. For those of you who have yet to read the book, this is a, a really, it's a fantastic book. Uh, you're going you're gonna to thank Marty for that. But I just want to close with the words of Casey Stengel. It's only appropriate. Just to set this little story up, uh, Casey Stengel, he begins his managing career in the minor leagues as a player manager and the president in Worcester. The team is owned by someone named Judge Fuchs. And that's the, the background for this story. And this is... Same guy that owned the Braves. Yes. And uh, I just thought this tells us a, a lot about Casey Stengel in many ways. And so I just want to read this. This starts with the writing of Marty Appel. Wooster was not a success at the gate. The nearby College of the Holy Cross's baseball team drew more fans. And Fuchs decided to move the team to Providence, Rhode Island in 1926. The assumption was that Casey would still be the manager, but before the year was over, he had received an offer to manage, manage the Toledo Mudhens of the American Association for more money. 
John McGraw was the catalyst. He had an ownership stake in the team and recommended Casey. In fact, Toledo would pay him $10,000 a year, which was similar to a major league manager's salary. He asked Fuchs to release him, but was turned down. Fuchs wanted him in Providence. So, pure Casey, he wrote himself a letter as manager to the club president himself, resigning as manager, and received a quick letter back from himself accepting the resignation. <laughs> Dear Mr. Stengel, having an opportunity to improve my position by going to a higher classification as manager, I hereby tender my resignation as manager of the Wooster Club. I cannot leave without thanking you for your courtesy, consideration, and advice, which was of great help in running the club. Very truly yours, Casey Stengel. Dear Casey, your letter came as, as a surprise. <laughs> your letter came as a surprise, but we realized that ability should be rewarded. Therefore, I join the fans of Wooster in expressing our appreciation for your outstanding services rendered and wish you luck in your new position. We congratulate Toledo on getting your valuable services. Very truly yours, Charles D. Stengel. <laughs> then came a wire to Fuchs. Manager Charles Dillon Stengel is hereby and as of this date dismissed as manager of the Wooster Eastern League Club. Charles Dillon Stengel, president, Wooster Baseball Club. And that is Casey Stengel, baseball's greatest character, written splendidly by Marty Appel. Thank you.